We're going to continue our series on our mission, threefold. One, to encounter Christ. Two, to experience community. And three, to extend the kingdom. Today we're going to talk about what it means to encounter Christ. Turn with me over to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The title of the message is Encounter Christ, His First Miracle. His First Miracle. Verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. When Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Verse 9, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know from where it came, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves good wine first. And when the people have, had, have drunk freely, then serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Lord, help us as we study. If we take our religious goggles off for a minute we have to look at this miracle and say this was the most unusual miracle Jesus did nobody got raised from the dead no blind eyes were open no deaf ears unstopped no lame men walked all Jesus did was help people who were already inebriated feel more so. (laughs) You you, kind of scratch your head when you look at it and say, why? Two things. Why did Jesus do this? And two, why is it in the Bible? This was his first miracle? And I'm going to give some context this morning to help you understand why this miracle is super important. And why you need to see more than just what is read in the print. First of all, weddings were big deals. Just like they're big deals today, but they were bigger back then. Bigger in scope, not in importance. A wedding would be announced a year in advance, and when it happened, it would happen for a week to two weeks. People would come from all over, and they would, would stay at the designated spot, usually the place of the bridegroom, a hotel or some place that he had reserved, or maybe a tent that had been put up in his backyard, and they would eat for a week to two weeks and expect that the bridegroom would provide for everything. I mean, it's one thing if you're a parent, you're providing for a reception for your daughter. 
a couple of hours, a meal, and maybe an open bar. But it closes. Before the day out, it closes. This would be two weeks sometimes. And hospitality was huge in the Jewish community. And in fact, all the Middle East, not so big in our Western world, but massively important in the Middle East. If you were inhospitable to people, it was as good as if you said, I hate you. You were required to open your door to folk that were on the road and had no place to go. Feed them and give them lodging as long as they needed it. And if you ran out of food at a reception, it was an offense to the guests who had made all that effort to come all that way to be at your baby's wedding. It would be inhospitable here. I mean, if somebody, you were there at the, at the reception and all of a sudden, no food, no drink. And the father of the bride said, well, there's a drinking fountain around the corner if you want to get something. And wait, 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 y'all didn't plan for this? That's the way it felt there. We ran out of wine. Now, this wedding happened in Cana. Cana was fairly close to Nazareth, probably about five, six miles. The place at which Jesus and Mary now lived was Capernaum, which is about 15 miles north. So the region of Galilee was much like the region of northern Virginia, as we know it. It was Herndon, Reston, Vienna, Great Falls, that kind of thing. And this wedding seemed to have impact in the entire region because it says that the disciples were there as well. Now, you would think that automatically because Jesus was there and the disciples were there that they came in a bunch. But if you look chronologically at this miracle, it happened right after Jesus had been baptized at the River Jordan. But before he had called Peter, James, and John when they had the miracle of the fish that were caught in Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 4 or so. And so they aren't, they aren't formally disciples yet. So we think John was speaking retrospectively, meaning what would happen later, that they would be known as disciples, but they were still there. And they were there not because they were Jesus' disciples, though they would be his disciples. They were there because they were invited by the guest, by the, by the host, as guests. And so these folk were for, from Capernaum, meaning most of the, some of the disciples from that area. So we see that this wedding had scope and people from all over the area were coming. And Mary must have been in good relationship with the parents of the groom or the bride to be invited. And it's unusual probably that Mary had really good relationships with many people. Remember Mary's reputation. Now we revere her as a saint, an amazing young woman who did things that most of us would cower at. Go ahead and say, you're, I'm pregnant, and receive that which God has given, yet everybody else thinks that I did something wrong and I didn't do anything wrong, but I've got to live with the disrepute of people. They're talking about me all the time. Can you imagine if she had been born today, what Twitter would do to that girl? What Facebook would do to her? It would be horrible. And she had to live with that constantly. But these people must have really cared about her. Secondly, Jesus had a reputation now. To think that they weren't at least known in the area, maybe not famous, but known, would be naive. Jesus was the finest student in his youth group. He was the best at Awana. He memorized all the scriptures. He was the one that everybody thought, boy, he's going to be something someday. When he opens that scroll, whoo, 
my God in heaven, what comes out of his mouth is just amazing. It's like God is speaking. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was this up and coming preacher, but they put a cap on him because they said, yeah, but his mama. We're not quite sure what happened there. We know Joseph was right. He was a right man because he was going to send her away knowing that she had done something really messed up. But he married her anyway. Eh, just Jesus might be all that, but there's something not right. See, it, it was said in the Old Testament that a person of illegitimate birth, what that means is parents that were not married, was not even able to enter into the house of God. So you couldn't be a priest. You couldn't come into the, the sanctuary or the temple, much less be a prophet or the Messiah. And so they looked at this Jesus who was pretty phenomenal and said, yeah, but not from the right kind of family. Mm -mm. So I imagine these gatherings to which Mary had to attend from time to time were kind of difficult. She'd show up and then you know what would happen, don't you? As soon as you do something really stupid at work, the water cooler's all abuzz. Folks start talking about you. Gossip just flows, and it doesn't stop malice, slander, all kind of stuff. And she knows as soon as she shows up that everybody's going to begin to say something. I imagine these gatherings were pretty hard on her. Don't know, don't know exactly why she moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum was their home now. We know she was from Nazareth because that's where the angel Gabriel had been sent to make the announcement about this virgin birth. But if she had moved simply to get out of the environment where everybody was talking about her constantly, I wouldn't blame her a bit. Good on you. But now she's in the region. And everybody who's a friend of hers or a friend of her parents or associated somehow with friends who knew her when she was growing up or now they're all there and she's got to be with them and imagine it's hard and not just for an afternoon for a week for a whole week so we see here a very difficult relational environment for Jesus' mama and we find this passage only in the gospel of John we don't find it in Matthew, Mark or Luke Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they kind of overlay one another in events, have similar time periods, and, and sometimes chronology. But John is written differently. It's written from a relational perspective, and John intended it to be that way, not from a chronological perspective. And John had a different relationship with Jesus than the rest of the, of the disciples. At the cross, Jesus was, was dying and in his greatest pain, he was still able to, to see his mama. And John, who had come back after fleeing the night before, along with John's mama, Mary, who was there, and then another Mary. So there were three Marys, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of John, and then another Mary, and then John. And Jesus looks from the cross and says, Mama, Mary, behold your son. And she pointed to John. he pointed to John. And then to John, he says, John, behold your mother. And it says from that moment on in John 19, verse 26 and 27, that John took her into his home and became her son and she his mother. Now, John already had a mama. She was right there. But Jesus knew, 
I can't leave my mama alone. We don't know what happened to Joseph, who was a surrogate father, Mary's husband. But we believe that he died of natural causes. As I've said before, it's pretty regular that an older man would marry a younger woman because it took a long time for him to get the money to pay the bride price to secure her hand in marriage. So it could be that Joseph was 40 and Mary was 16. If that's the case, that means that Jesus, when he matured into a minister at the River Jordan at the age of 30, would have made Joseph somewhere in the neighborhood of 70. And most folk didn't live, men didn't live past 55. That was the average age. So Joseph probably passed on. Jesus couldn't leave his mama with nobody. But he realized there's nobody I can leave her with better than John. So John became Mary's boy. And Mary became John's second mama. And although John did not write in his gospel, which would be written in the latter part of the first century, and we know that Jesus' ministry was in the first third of the first century, John, in retrospect, decided not to write in the same way as the other gospel writers. And so we don't have an account of him listing what happened when the angel Gabriel came to, to Mary and, and told her that she would be bearing the, the Christ child. What we do have here is a confirmation that she did. Because remember, when Jesus does a miracle, all the molds that people have religiously of what somebody born from a woman like that can't do get busted. Jesus? Um, you know they've run out of wine. They run out of wine. Now, there's something that happens between mama and son. Unspoken communication. Stuff that's said that's not said. Because when, when Jesus hears his mama say they've run out of wine, he says this. Well, what's that got to do with us? In other words, so? <laughs> they run out of wine. So? That ain't my problem. That ain't your problem. You know it's not my time. Now, Mary didn't say nothing about it being his time. But there was this unspoken thing. You know, it, it's not my time. Mm, I know. But they run out of wine. <laughs> they, they, I'm just letting you know, FYI, they ran out. See, he had just gotten baptized at the River Jordan three days earlier. John the Baptist had proclaimed him to be the one. Mary knew all that. She thought, well, about time to start something, isn't it? Now, I'm not trying to tell you. I realize you got this ministry thing going on, and, and God's your father, and he begins to dictate when's the best time to do what. But I'm just letting you know they ran out of wine. And when Jesus responds with this theological correctness, and he needed to. He needed to set the parameters. This was one of those moments where he was able to say without saying it, Mom, I love you, but I got to do what my father says do now. I'm, I'm, I'm a father's boy, too. That's what he was saying. You, I, you, can't, direct, I, you can't direct me anymore like that just because you're my mama. And she looks at him, and she realizes what he's saying. But mamas have this look like, <laughs> just looking. Don't say that. And then you can almost see her turn to the waiters and say, just do whatever he says, do. And then she walks off. And there he is watching her walk away, thinking, hmm, 
I sure do love that woman. Because what he does next is amazing. No, it wasn't his time to be revealed as the Messiah to the entire world, but to a select few that would be at the River Jordan, and to build a team called his ministry team, the disciples. Yes, it was time for that, but for everybody to know, no, it wasn't time. But he loved his mama, and he could not stand it. Every time she came in this environment, she was degraded and slandered and talked bad about when she was the finest woman in all the land. This is when a boy just stands up and says, something's got to be done. So that's the background. John being somebody who cared, as Jesus did for Mary. So he cared. And he said, I'm going to put something in my gospel that lets everybody know this woman was vindicated. Not once did she stand up and write a blog and say, I didn't do that. Not once did she say to the whole world from a, a bully pulpit, I'm not that kind of wo-. We don't have anybody, any place in Scripture where she stood up to try to defend herself daily. Though we would have. She just took it on the chin every day and said, Lord, you will vindicate me. If folk talk bad about me for the rest of my life, fine, as long as I'm right with you. That's all right. But she did tell him. They ran out of wine. And Jesus said, I'm going to fix this for you, mama. And he turns the water to wine just so everybody there could believe that he was exactly who she said he was. And then changed the climate of derision that surrounded her so that everybody now would shut up and minimally just say, I respect. I may not figure it out, but I respect. The love of a son for a mama, pretty strong, pretty strong. Now, John puts it in there, I think, for this purpose. But there's also a metaphorical purpose, a symbology here about what water means and what pots mean and what wine means. And wine is an influencer. When people drink wine, it changes how they talk. It changes how they think. Some of y'all remember from last night. (laughs) You you don't have to go way back in your history to figure that one out. It changes how you act. Wine's an influencer. And they ran out of influence in the wedding. They ran out of influence. And there ought to never be a time when a Christian runs out of his influence. When people taste us, it ought to cause them to react differently. They ought not be able to stay the same after they've tasted of our lives. You know, the the letter called Revelation, but specifically the note that God begins to write by way of dictation to the church at Laodicea. He says this, they were doing some things wrong. They, they were rich and, and had gold and silver and health and clothes. And God said, really, you're poor, blind and naked. You don't know what you're doing. And I would rather you be hot or cold, but lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And, and many commentators, people who write on what the Bible means, say that hot means good and cold means bad. 
got to be hot or cold. I don't think that's what, what Jesus was talking about there. Because I don't think God would say, I would rather you be bad. I think what he was saying is this. I'd rather you be somebody that causes other people to respond to in such a way that they got to think about what they're doing before they respond. And he was using metaphors that the, that the city in Laodicea would know to relate to. They'd figured out. Meaning Laodicea had, was bordered by two, two towns, Colossae and Heropolis. Heropolis had hot springs. And those hot springs would flow down to Laodicea. Colossae had cold springs. And those cold springs would flow down to Laodicea. The hot springs would be used as the, 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 the base material to produce a salve upon which they would place on people's eyes who had eye problems. And Laodicea was famous for healing the eyes. Interesting that God speaks in this passage and says, you're blind. Secondly, the water from Colossae would be that which they would drink. So there was use for the hot and the cold. But it's amazing what people do when they come to either hot or cold water. When, when you come to a hot tub, do you just jump in? You don't, you don't just jump in? Just, boom, no. When I come to a hot tub, this is what I do. I stick my toe in. Oh, yeah. Now get my other toe. All right. Oh, yeah. Takes me about 15 minutes to get in a hot tub. I have to approach it differently. Because it's not comfortable. Anybody swam in the ocean? In Cape Cod? Boston? It takes, that water's 62 degrees in July. By the way, that's cold. (laughs) It takes me forever. I used to, my, my family used to go to Cape Cod. We had a friend that let us use her house up there. It was beautiful, gorgeous. In July, 80, 82 degrees every day, wonderful. But the beach and the water, so cold, so cold. It would take me 45 minutes. And I felt like a sissy, but I wasn't mad. <laughs> Some folk were so used to it, they just dive on in. I said, I can't do that. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. God says this. I want you to be somebody that people have to figure out how they're going to approach you. They have to change their response to you. They aren't comfortable around you. I want you to be hot or cold. Pick one. But when you're lukewarm, they don't need to change anything around. They can jump into your life and feel like everything's fine that they're doing. Are you listening to me? I pray that there's something about you that makes people change. That inspires them to be different. If you can hang around all the people in your world... And it doesn't matter what they do anytime they do it because they think it's not going to affect you at all and you don't affect them. You need to change a little bit because you're a little lukewarm. And what God says about lukewarm, he says, you are useless to me. I can't drink you, nor can I use you. When I put you in my mouth, I got to spit you out. Useless. And there are too many Christians that are going to heaven. But don't make any difference here. Doesn't matter whether they're on the planet. Nobody needs to reapproach how they approach you because you don't make a difference. God help us. 
Wine is an influencer. When they take a drink from you, it ought to be different in the way they respond later. Jesus says this, bring me some water pots. Now, there's nothing real supernatural about stone pots, water pots, nothing. They're just ordinary. Pedestrian, garden variety, like bread. Containers that don't have anything that's particularly amazing about them. Just normal. But something happens when you put the right thing in them. And something happens when God takes your normal, average, everyday, ordinary life and you are filled with him. Water is a metaphor in scripture for everything good spiritually. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, there's a flow that's coming and people are going to be filled with the spirit and out of their innermost being will come rivers of living water. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about how a man ought to treat a woman. And it says the husband ought to water his wife with the word of God. And so everything about water spiritually is that which comes from God for sustaining life, to help people be right. It's spiritual goodness. And here we see John saying Jesus is asking for normal pots to be filled with good water. And no no, uh, coincidence that these are the pots of purification. These were the pots where people would come to wash their hands before they ate. In other words, purify their lives before they sat down to enjoy. And, and, and God wants to make you a pot of purification. And when people dip into you, they get more right. Are you listening to me? John put this in here to help you because this was Jesus' first miracle. And this is what he wants to do with you first. Take your empty pot and fill it. Fill it with his spirit, fill it with his presence, fill it with his word. And that's how you need to come in here. Now, if you have already filled your pot with some of your own stuff, it's going to be hard to be filled with God. It's going to be real hard. You need to come in every week saying, God, fill me afresh with all that you have for me. Rather than asking that he bless your ideas that you filled your own pot with, you begin to ask him, fill me with your ideas and your word so that I can be equipped to do your will. I think I've preached you under the chair. Half of y'all just looking at me like, it's time for me to leave now. (laughs) Empty pots are ready to be filled. Jesus said, fill them with water. And they filled them to the brim and and, and he brought them to them. Brought them to him. The waiters did. And, and, and then the waiters took them to the head waiter. And, and it says when the head waiter tasted the water, that the water had become wine. And this is what God does for you. When you begin to be filled with him, and you begin to live that which you're supposed to do, he takes the ordinary word. This word, which is chapter and verse, printed on a page, he takes it, and then as you have been filled with it, when people taste your life that is consistent with living it correctly, they taste something completely different than what went in. Something that helps to change them. I can't explain the supernatural way it happens. It just happens. That's why, generally speaking, you come this week after you came last week. Because I didn't stand up here and just read words on a page. 
I studied all week long, tried to figure out the context to help you, to flesh this thing out more than just words on a page and tell you what was happening in between the lines, give you all the personalities involved. So it became alive to you. And now this, this stuff that you're drinking is not the water that went in, but it's the wine that's coming out. Are you listening to me? Now, you may not be able to do it like me. And I'm not real satisfied with doing it like me. When I listen to myself, I don't like myself. No, 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 no. It's not that I, I have an insecurity about me not being good enough. It's just that when you listen to yourself do anything, you think, oh. You ever listen to yourself sing? You, ever, you think you can sing till you listen to yourself. Yes, you do. You think you can talk until you listen to yourself. Oh, gosh, really? Now, I've done this so long that I know what I sound like. But I'm my biggest critic. I'm not quite sure sometimes. Why did you say it like that? Why were you so animated there? You need to be less emotional. Oh, maybe not. You need to be emotional there. And so I critique myself all the time. Every once in a while I say, no, that was good right there. (laughs) That was a good point right there. I preach myself happy sometimes. I'll get drunk in my own revelation. You may not be able to do it like me, but you can do it. And if you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with his water, to fill you with the water of the word, when it comes out, it'll taste different to the other people. We're called to be influencers. This is the first miracle he did. And God wants to fill you with his presence, not partially. Fill you with all of him, as much of him as you can take. And the beauty is this, that when the water that turns to wine runs out, because the more people dip their ladle on the inside of you, the more they're going to take. There's a never-ending supply of water. You can always come back and get more. And this is what the, the head waiter said. I am amazed. Everybody, every wedding always saves the poorest wine to the very end. Because generally, he didn't say this, but this is the truth. You serve the best wine, the best taste of wine in the beginning because people are so drunk by the end, they can't taste nothing anyway. It's true. So you serve the worst wine at the end. He said, but you save the best. Nobody does that. That's amazing. Your wine to other people will taste better tomorrow than today. Better next week than this week. I haven't preached my best sermon yet. I haven't done my best living yet. The wine that's coming out of me is getting better and better and better and better. Not because I work at trying to be a great articulator from here. I'm not trying to be the best pulpiteer. I'm just trying to make sure that I am filled with him on a regular basis that I have his will on the inside of me, that that I'm living it every day, and that I'm making him happy. I'm bringing a smile to his face every time I put my head on my pillow, thinking, God, today was it good. Were you happy with me today? As a result of living that which I need to do, just being a really good Christian, that makes me a competent minister. But if I'm trying to be a competent minister without trying to live it, then I'm a performer. Anointed by God nonetheless, but hollow only good for you, not for him. God wants you to be filled with his presence. And when people on Tuesday, 
dip their ladle into your life, you'd be surprised how drunk they get, how influenced they are. All of a sudden, they ain't cussing around you. All of a sudden, they're not as normal as they used to be. They, um, uh, um, where do you go to church? Um, can, can we sit down and talk? Um, um, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know how to say it, but I, I, I need help. When last week they were, dog, where are you going tonight? You want, you want club with me? All of a sudden, because you're hot or cold, they've got to approach you differently. You can tell how influential you are by how people approach you after they know who you are. You can tell. And I beg you, make them drunk. Make them drunk with everything that God wants to give them. Let's pray. Father, pour out your goodness on everybody this morning. Have your way.